In just a moment, we're going to hear the words from Scripture. So I invite you to join us in prayer. God, as we hear your words, may we hear your message. May it fill our hearts. May it fill this space. May your message resonate within us. May we take away what you are meant to be told. We pray that we take these words into our lives, into our week, into our Sunday. And we pray that we live your, live your word out properly through your, through your son Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. good idea. Our um, scripture this morning is from the Old Testament. It's uh, a story of one of many stories of Elisha the prophet, and um, it's taken from 2 Kings verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Hear these words of the Lord. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Aramans on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel and she served Naaman's wife, and she said to her mistress, if only my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when, but when, he, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. 
So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away saying, I thought that for me, he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot to cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned away in a rage, but his servants approached him and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God on all earth except in Israel. Please accept a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will accept nothing. He urged him to accept but he refused. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ruth. Government leaders in despair, accusations of rudeness, the haves and the have-nots, misunderstood request for international favors. What modern themes we have in our scripture reading today. Finally, we come to events that are less common in our contemporary news feeds, a healing and a conversion. To set the stage, today's story takes place in a period of Israel's history after King David and King Solomon. In 922 BCE, the kingdom of Israel divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The kings and the people fell further and further from God. And the prophet Elisha, among others, was a voice calling for a return to righteousness. Samaria was both the capital city of the northern kingdom and the area around the city. After the time of Elisha, Samaria was conquered by the Assyrians, and there was a lot of movement of people in and out of that region. But the time of Jesus... The intermixing of people and other rivalries led the region of Samaria to be regarded with suspicion 
by the residents of the southern kingdom of Judea. And that's probably the setting in which we're much more familiar with the location of Samaria. Today's story starts outside of Samaria in the neighboring kingdom of Aram, what we would call Syria today. It's the story of Naaman, a general of Aram. He's a successful general. He's a man of stature and wealth. He is highly regarded. Even his name means pleasant. Interestingly, even though we have no indication that Naaman had any relationship with the God of Israel before this time, we learn in the first verse of the story that it is through Naaman that the Lord has given victory to Aram. But Naaman has a skin disease known as leprosy. If you're interested, you can find an extremely tedious dermatology lesson in Leviticus 13. But the bottom line is that the word used for leprosy in the Old Testament encompassed a lot of skin diseases, including the one that we know as leprosy. But it may have also included conditions like eczema and psoriasis with the same name. Thus, the so-called leprosy was not necessarily contagious or deadly, but in Israelite society, it did render its victims ritually unclean and thus socially outcast. We're not sure how the skin condition affected Naaman, but clearly it was troubling to him. Since he was a man of means, he had likely tried all of the local healers to rid himself of this cursed condition. Naaman's wife was served by a girl captured on a raid of Israel. The slave girl suggests that Naaman seek out the prophet in Samaria who can cure leprosy. Naaman moves on this advice right away. He consults the king of Aram, who gives him a letter of reference, if you will, to the king of Israel. Naaman gathers gifts, quite a bit of silver and gold, and ten fine outfits, and makes his way to the king of Israel. The king of Israel worries that this is a setup. He knows that he's not God. He knows he can't cure leprosy. Naaman is not cured. Will it turn out that this seemingly humanitarian request is a facade for war? The king tears his clothing in distress. Elisha, hearing of the problem, contacts the king and tells him to send Naaman on over. Naaman appears at Elisha's door. It's fun to picture the entourage that must have appeared with all this gold and silver and clothing. And Naaman waits for Elisha's appearance. But Elisha sends his word by servant. The instructions are for Naaman to dip seven times in the river Jordan. This upsets the mighty general. Naaman speaks of the more attractive rivers that he has left behind in Aram, and he starts off for home. But a servant reminds him that he would have done something more difficult if Elijah had asked, and he might as well try the Jordan. Naaman reconsiders, follows Elisha's advice, and his skin is restored to youthful softness. Naaman returns to Elisha and professes belief in the one God of Israel. He offers Elisha the treasures he has brought, and Elisha refuses to accept them. A theme that we might notice here 
is that in spite of the two kings, one general, and one prophet in the story, there's no story here without the no names. The young slave girl whose name is never given starts the story with her offer of information on the healing available through the prophet Elijah. Later, when Naaman haughtily rejects Elisha's advice, it is his no-name servant that convinces him there's no harm to be had by dipping in the Jordan. This story gives us a preview of the topsy-turvy kingdom of God that Jesus presents in the New Testament, where the last will be first and the first will be last. A foreign slave girl and later a manservant direct the mighty general. The slave girl's story is remarkable in another way. She gives us a model for evangelism. In a foreign land, at the height of disenfranchisement, she speaks out of her own culture and faith. She's a bearer of the good news of the God of Israel. She does not seem to be so much interested in Naaman's conversion as she is in helping him and glorifying God. But ultimately, through her testimony, he experiences salvation from the isolation and ostracization of his leprosy, and he is converted to faith in the God of Israel. I'm particularly struck by her sensitivity to Naaman's difficulty and her willingness to serve outside of her defined role, even as I root for her to be delivered out of her current oppressed situation. Writer Anne Lamott speaks whimsically about learning to offer help to others as we struggle with our own needs. She says, again and again, I tell God I need help. And God says, well, isn't that fabulous? Because I need help too. So you go get that old woman over there some water, and I'll figure out what we're going to do about your stuff. The slave girl knows somehow that her drastic and God-given need for liberation can coexist with the directive to give. So she does give, not for her own gain, but to assist others. She gives a testimony, she, she gives advice, and she's helpful. With that introduction to this story, I come to our stewardship focus, which I was asked to speak on today. The focus is, God will provide. We are invited to trust. Our scripture today gives us vivid portraits of people who do and do not trust God. First, let's consider the king of Israel. He's not known for his savvy, but we still might expect him to have firsthand knowledge of God's power and faithfulness. We might expect him to trust God to provide. He's honest enough to know that he doesn't have the power to heal. But does he call on the God of Israel or even the prophet of the God for assistance? No. It is as if, it's, it is as if he is enacting a ditty that I learned when I first began to take on adult responsibilities. When in trouble... When in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. 
The king manifests his panic response by tearing his clothes. Elisha has to intervene to remind him that the king, to remind the king that a prophet lives nearby and is available to help. The king provides an example of despair rather than trust. The most remarkable example of trusting in God to provide comes from the young slave girl. There's no way to soften the trauma she's endured. She was stripped of her home, likely her family, due to the whims of warriors. It's hard to imagine anyone with less power in that society than a young foreign female slave. And yet, she's the voice of matter-of-fact trust in God. She's the voice that speaks with confidence of God's prophet Elijah in healing. She offers the information freely and with kind intent. Naaman draws most of our attention as he shows us all sorts of barriers to trust in God, barriers that can apply to us as well. In all fairness to Naaman, the first barrier is that he's not acquainted with this God of Israel. His introduction to Israel is through the lens of war, where Israel is the enemy, and a weak one at that. But the seed of interest is planted by the slave girl, and her testimony, coupled with his desperation, leads him to act. Even so, his actions belie his lack of trust. He lines up his considerable resources. A letter from his king to the king of Israel, 150 pounds of gold, 750 pounds of silver, and 10 fine outfits. He is putting his trust in himself. He's counting on his connections and his wealth to open doors. He overlooks the slave girl's real recommendation that he seek out Elisha the prophet and goes for the power position of the king. Once he is redirected to Elisha's house and Elisha provides simple instructions by way of his servant, Naaman is insulted. He expects a bit more respect and a bit more show. Clearly, if he's going to trust this God, the least that God and God's prophets can do is to act the part of a respectable healer. And we understand this. If we're going to entrust ourselves to a hospital or a business or a church, we look for certain markers as well. Suitable location, the right wardrobe, the convincing rituals. What Naaman perceives as a lack of international propriety prompts him to head back home, but his servant convinces him to go ahead with the simple act of dipping in that mud hole known as the Jordan River. Naaman is healed, and he returns to Elijah with a statement of trust and faith in the one God of Israel. Naaman overcomes pride and trust in his own status and power. He almost loses his way, but he shows a remarkable openness, a willingness to take small steps of trust. First with the young slave girl, and then with that prophet known as Elisha, and finally with his own servants. Through the trustworthiness of those people around him, 
he's ultimately led to trust in God. He is healed. He's restored to normal participation in society. Not only is his skin to the, turned to that of a young person, he comes to claim the faith that he's first seen in a young girl. I've already spoken of the willingness of the slave girl to give what she had. We might be tempted to look at Naaman and think that he had so much more to give, even if we only look at the gift money he brought on the trip. But this was all transactional money, a quid pro quo intended to facilitate his cure. Elisha, as the servant of God, did not care about these goods. Elisha cared about glorifying God. Naaman tried to offer the goods again in gratitude once he was healed, and Elisha still did not accept the gift. Naaman's situation and ours reminds me of a story. A small boy was playing with a valuable vase, and he got his hand stuck in the vase. He couldn't get it out. Before resorting to breaking the vase, his father said, son, relax. Just open your hand and pull it out. To the father's astonishment, the little guy said, I can't. If I do, I'll drop my penny. We, like Naaman, can be tempted to forego our true wealth of trust in God by holding tightly to those things of lesser value. Our pride and the influence and the comfort that we can buy. We, like Naaman, have to learn that the gifts of God are freely given. The response asked of us is not a payment, but faithfulness. The life of faithfulness enabled by our trust in God is our ongoing challenge. Amen.